uh, in the Puritan series, and this um, is free to each family, one per family or one per single person. Uh, make sure you pick one of those up as you leave today, and we would encourage you to just take a few minutes this week and read through it. It's not a long read. Today we return in our study to the book of Romans, so I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. Now we've been going through Romans on Wednesday nights for a few years, and we have finally come to uh, Romans chapter 12, and I had decided, I believe, the Lord's leading to bring Romans 12 through the rest of the book uh, to the Sunday morning hour, and to finish this book here. Some real practical advice and some real practical teaching uh, regarding our Christian life. And I think we're going to find it very beneficial to all of us. And uh, it is just at the right time, this being the first Sunday of the new year, what better portion of scripture to address than Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I remembered that I had preached this a not too long ago, in fact, uh, for those of you who have exquisite memories, you would remember that in July 2020, I preached these two verses. So I went back and listened to what I believe, and uh, now I'm going to reshare it with you with a few other thoughts along the way. Now, I just want to give you a heads up, we're not going to get to verse 2 today. So just verse 1, and then next Lord's Day, we'll look at verse 2. These are two very important verses. Now, just to help you understand this, this passage is really the application of the first 11 chapters of Romans. So in order for us to truly understand what Paul is begging for here, literally, exhorting for, you have to understand the first 11 chapters. And if you have not read the book of Romans, or maybe it's been a while, I would encourage you to start reading through it again and remind yourself of some of the important highlights really mountain peaks of theology regarding our salvation found in the book of Romans. We will highlight some of that today, just so you know, and we'll go through that. Let me read the text to begin with. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The word of God says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There are no two verses that I can think of that have had such a radical effect upon my own personal Christian life than these two verses in Romans 12. I would have to say that I am probably more familiar with these two verses than I am any other portion of Scripture. I've quoted it more often. I've referred to it more often. I've reminded myself of these two verses more often, and probably as far as a repeat sermon, I have probably preached these two verses more than any other passage in all of the Bible. So I am very familiar with what Paul is talking about here, and I know that you are also. And so what I would caution at the very beginning is that because of our familiarity with the text, that we would tune out. And we need to remind ourselves, as even Peter said on one occasion, that I share these things with you as a reminder, because we are, as much as we would hope not to be, but we are forgetful people. And we forget some very basic principles found in the Word of God, and this is one of those texts that we need to be reminded of periodically. They really are the summation of the expectations of the Christian life. If you were to sum up what God would expect of you as a Christian, 
and how you should be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, these two verses would summarize that. There's no doubt about that. They are really a proper and right response to the salvation that you and I have been so graciously given. And a Christian should not ever offer any less than what's recorded here in this passage. This talks about absolute, total devotion to Jesus Christ. Total devotion to Jesus Christ. Because Christ is mine, then all that I am and all that I have is his. And Christian life starts, as you all know, with total abandonment to him. Uh, it is also a continuation of that abandonment to Christ in your Christian life. It should be no different. When someone comes to Jesus in salvation, there is nothing less expected than a whole and absolute and total, complete devotion to Jesus Christ. To become a Christian, there is no such thing as half-hearted commitment. There is no such thing. Or partial repentance. Or a half-hearted trust. God is not expecting you to come down the narrow path with luggage. He expects you to come completely abandoning all that you have and all that you are so that you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. He expects you literally to drop everything that you may think is most important and to give your whole attention to him and to give your whole attention to him. He desires, no doubt, clearly the best for you to save you from your sin and to save you from hell and judgment, but there is a cost involved in all of that. It is not you paying the cost that gets you saved, no doubt, but it is by God's grace that he enables you to abandon what you desire in your life so that you can follow Jesus. This has been, of course, a problem in a lot of the evangelistic circles today. Sadly, it's a fundamental error in our evangelistic approaches, approaches to think that you can come to Christ and have a whole lot of other stuff in your, in your life as baggage as far as that is concerned. It should not be that way at all. Too often, Jesus Christ is presented in our culture as someone who is there to solve your problems. And if you'll just believe in Jesus, then your problems will vanish away. Or perhaps often, as I've heard it, Jesus is someone who will help you with your relationships. And if Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, then your marriage will be better and your work relationships will be better and all of those other things that we often look at as most important. And he is often presented as a means to the end rather than the end itself. He is the end itself. Jesus said himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And not only is he the summation of all things and the God of heaven and earth and the sovereign one of all creation, but you and I are to give our all to him. He should be our goal. He should be our purpose. He should be our love. He should be our devotion. And I grant you that if you follow what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, you're going to find exactly what that says to be true. He is not giving us, as so often it is taught today, health, wealth, and prosperity. That is a popular thought, not only here in America, but also throughout the world. Sadly, in Africa, in Europe, and even in India, believe it or not, with such poverty, Jesus is offered as health and wealth and prosperity. And if you come to Jesus, it is taught that everything would be great and you would have a better life as a result of it. And that is not true. That is not true at all. To call someone totally to abandon their sin is what God is expecting of you. 
He expects you to completely and totally eliminate your affection and your love for your own sin and your own direction and your own purpose. That's exactly what Christ expects of us whenever you enter into the kingdom, does he not? You don't hear a whole lot of evangelistic approaches taught this way, but I'll show you what I mean. Look at Luke 14 for a moment. Luke 14. And I'll show you how Jesus called people to the kingdom, how Jesus called people to salvation. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, there was a great multitude that went with him. Now, this was a large crowd. By this time, they were in the thousands. And just counting the men as they often did, there would have been many thousands more women and children who would have followed him at this time. So there's a great opportunity for an evangelistic crusade, if you will. Here's an opportunity to share with the crowd how someone can be a true devoted follower of Christ, how they can be indeed saved from their sin. So at the very beginning in Luke 14, 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He did not say you might not be my disciple. He says you cannot be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus is calling for here is absolute total abandonment for him. You are to love him so much and be devoted to him so much that your love for your father and your mother and your wife and your children Yes, and even your own life looked like hate. He's not calling you to hate your father or mother or your brother or your sister or your children. He's simply saying that your relationship to Christ should be so clearly evident and your devotion to him should, should be so, so committed that your love for him, when you compare it to the love you have for your family members, it would look like hate. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross was something that the disciples would have been very familiar with. It was the Roman crucifixion that that, that refers to. They would have known what that meant. That meant death and nothing short of that. And not just any death, but a cruel death, a horrible death. And Jesus makes it very clear at the very beginning, if you're not willing to give your all for me, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to give your life for me, you cannot be my disciple. In verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish. And all who see begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether or not he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while another is still a great way off he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace so likewise whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple now just to be clear here he's not talking about go sell your house and your car and sell your children and come and follow me that's not what he's saying what he is, I know some of you would want to sell your children, so just, I get it. But the point is, is that what he's telling us is, is that you must have an attitude and a heart of complete abandonment of all those things. 
You must be willing to follow me 100%. Now think about most of the evangelistic approaches today. Do you hear any of that? Is that what's offered? Is that, is that what's said? You know the reason why it's not said? Because we want results. We know if we say all this, nobody's going to come. At least we believe that. And what that is is a, really a betrayal of your own theology. Because if you believe no one will come, then you don't understand what effectual call is. You don't understand how God saves. And how it doesn't matter how difficult the barrier is that you would put up in coming to Christ. If God is regenerating a soul and drawing him to himself, nothing can stop him. He comes willing to die. He comes willing to give all. He comes, as it even says in Matthew 5, uh, 4 and following, he comes poor in spirit, bankrupt of all that he has. So it is something that is clear here in the Lord's mind that he wants them to understand that whenever he calls someone to be his disciple, to be a follower of him, he's not asking for partial commitment. He's not asking for you to make a donation. He's not asking for us to be 75% committed. He wants 100%. 100%. So that means you're committed when you're here. You're committed when you're not here. You're committed when you're home and when you're at your workplace. You're committed wherever you are, totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Now there's another text you can turn to if you'd like. Look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Here again we have the same and very similar approach. Here now he's talking more to his personal disciples, the ones that followed him, the 12. And in Matthew 16, 21, it says this, And from that time, Matthew 16, 21, And from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now Peter responds in verse 22. And it says that he began to rebuke Jesus. Saying far be it from you Lord. That this shall not happen to you. Now Peter did not to give him credit. He did not fully understand all the plan of redemption at this time. They were hard headed. They didn't see it all. They didn't understand it all. But Peter was determined that he was going to do whatever he could, at least verbally speaking, to stop this. No one was going to kill his Lord. No one was going to take his master. No one was going to take the very one that he would confess as his Lord and Savior that the Father above had given him understanding of. But in verse 23 it says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's strong, is it not? In other words, Satan is using you, Peter. He says, you are an offense to me. It wasn't just earlier that he was actually committed to the confession that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord. And now he's being used by Satan. He was getting revelation from the Father earlier. Now he's speaking on behalf of the devil. And it says in verse 23, for you are not yet mindful, here it is, of the things of God. But you're more mindful of the things of men. So he turned to his disciples in 24 and said to them and Peter, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. 
deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Jesus is saying if your goal in this life is to make your life number one and to protect all about your life and to do what you desire, you're not my disciple. Those are strong words, folks. Those are strong. I don't know about you. Whenever I read those texts, I, I often examine myself. I wonder, am I really that committed? Am I that committed that I'm willing to let my life go and all of my ambitions, desires, and wants and even my physical life for that? He says in verse 25, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He is stating here that there's a defining marker of a true disciple. A true disciple is one who is abandoned to Christ. He's abandoned to Christ. Verse 26 says, For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? One of the most troubling things we see today in Christianity is a materialistic, saturated gospel. It's all about here, it's all about now, it's all about what you can get. And that's foreign to what the gospel is. You and I are to be willing to give it all up for Christ. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably, you'll probably hear it a few times in the, this year coming. I believe we're headed for serious trouble in this country. I believe we're headed for some of the most difficult days you and I have ever personally experienced. There's turmoil everywhere. everywhere. There's immorality everywhere. There's disagreement. There's arguing. There's debating. There's fighting all over this country, not even to speak of the world alone. There's deceit, lying. Who knows where we're going to be when we finally get to November of this year, right? And I'll be honest with you. I think there's coming a time when you and I as believers are going to be tested beyond things we've ever experienced. I'll share something with you, and this was not included in the sermon, so it's a footnote for free. Last night I was listening to a, a, a particular interview that I'll share more about it later, but in this interview, they were talking about some of the things that are now being treated as terrorism in our country. You know, whenever we first had the initial terroristic attacks, that, the terrorist attacks that occurred in 9-11, we had one before that, if you don't forget about that one, that hit the uh, Twin Towers in the basement area. But whenever the Twin Towers were attacked, there was a whole effort put forth to redefine our approach and our fight against terrorism. Well, as a result of that, and even as a result of some of the last things that have occurred in the last elections, we have now seen this definition of terrorism get a whole lot more detailed and, sadly, a whole lot more scarier. And what I mean by that is, I mean, now what is defined in our government as terrorism is this. Misinformation is considered terrorism. Disinformation, which is like lying, is terrorism. But there's another one that really caught my attention, malinformation. I don't know if you've ever even heard of that, but malinformation is this. Anytime you and I speak up that would create a distrust in the government is malinformation, and it's considered terrorism. Now think about what I say in this pulpit. 
Think about what you say. Think about what you post and repost and what you put on social media, which, by the way, is a permanent record. So the point is, is that whatever I stand up and say something that maybe creates in your mind or your heart a distrust of the United States government is considered terrorism, malinformation. Now, folks, this is setting the stage for trouble for all of us as believers. Because there are things that are going down in the United States and in this world right now that you and I will not be able to agree with. We will not be able to support. There are things happening in our culture that I don't even need to share that you are all aware of, immorality speaking, that we don't support, we don't agree with. We're not going to get behind. And so whenever we do anything, say anything, stand up against those things, then we are considered those who are spewing forth malinformation and we are actually involved in terrorism against the United States government. These things are going to get worse for all of us. Persecution will rise, I'm sure. But my point is this. Your belief in Christ, your commitment to Jesus Christ is going to be tested. We've lived in a really a time of tremendous peace. I mean, as far as even my Christian life is concerned, there's been very little threat against my life personally as a Christian. I've lost jobs for my Christian stance. But that's nothing compared to what much of the world experiences right now whenever they stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are going to experience much more of that, and you need to be asking yourself a question as we go through Romans 12, 1 and 2. Am I this devoted? Because I grant you this will be tested. It will be tested. And in this text, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling Peter, if you're not willing to lose your life for mine, you're not my disciple. You're not my disciple. There's another one that we have an example from, and that's Paul the Apostle. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, 8 and following, now I won't go into the whole detail. Paul is giving us his personal testimony of how God saved him out of a very zealous religion of Judaism, a works-centered religion. And he had everything possible that would be beneficiary to him as a Jewish person. And his point was, ultimately, if anyone could be saved by effort, fleshly effort, birth, lineage, works, religion, if anybody ever had the potential of being saved from and through that, he had the most. He had the most. And yet his point is in Philippians 3, 8 and following is that none of that can save him at all. Notice what he says in verse 8. Philippians 3, 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, yeah, I don't want to go too deep into this, but he's using financial terms here. Loss and gain. You lose a certain amount of things and you gain others. And here he's talking about losing all, listen to this, his whole life that he had invested in his religion of Judaism, all the works, all the effort put forth to obey the law of God, not only the law of God, but all the laws the Jews had put around the law of God and all the efforts and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the efforts as a Pharisee. He says, I count all these things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, 
that I might gain Christ. The New King James translation of the word rubbish is a very polite word. Because what that means is a pile of manure. That's what it means. He says it's nothing. It's useless. It has no value whatsoever. He says, I let all of that go. I lost it all. I set it all aside that I might gain Christ. In verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he let it all go. He lost it all so that he could gain Christ. And there's... There is no greater exchange than to let all of this go for Jesus. I mean, think about it. When you finally close your eyes in death, it's not going to matter how big your house is. It isn't going to matter whether you were a very well-known, strategic, important person. (laughs) It's not going to matter how much you did, what success you had in this world. What's going to matter is whether or not you know Jesus. That's it. That's all that matters. None of the other things will be weighed in the balances. You let it all go for Jesus. You give your all to him. J.I. Packer had written years ago, he said, The repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. You read that one more time. The repentance that Christ requires of his people consists of a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. In other words, Lord, nothing is off limits here. Nothing at all. I can remember many years ago now, whenever the Lord called me to ministry, I didn't get a voice from heaven. Nothing happened like that, no lightning bolts or anything like that. But I can remember very clearly in my mind and in my heart, I had reached a point that Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 was very real to me. And I was like, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I give it all up to you. It's yours. In my limited understanding of missions at that time, I said, Lord, if you want me to go live in a mud hut, I'll go live in a mud hut. Whatever it was, I was absolutely, totally abandoned to Christ in whatever he wanted to do. And then, of course, he placed in me a desire for the pastorate. That's where he wanted me to be. The point is, is that any repentance that is a repentance that leads to salvation is the kind of repentance J.I. Packer talked about that is literally a settled refusal to set any limit on the claims of Christ. It isn't, Jesus, I'm coming to you with everything but... There is no but. It's all him and everything. Now, when we come to this text, it is could be and could be just read and preached, and that would be enough just to read it. But in verse one, Paul begins to start this wonderful application, really application of the first 11 chapters of Romans by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, or I beg you, therefore, brethren. I beg you, the word beseech, parakaleo is the word, it means to come alongside of or to call alongside. Paul uses this a number of times. 
He says this like in Ephesians 4.1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. In 1 Timothy 2.1, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and givings of thanks be made for all men. The word exhort there is the same word beseech. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Uh, This is a begging and exhortation. It does carry the weight of the apostles, though, so it's not just a, I hope you will. I mean, this is the apostle Paul who carries the weight of the authority of the apostles, but also, to just give clarity to this, it carries the weight of the Holy Spirit because this is indeed the very words of God. So it's not an option. He's not saying, I hope you will. He's begging you as he goes on in the text and says, because of the mercies of God. He begs you because of the mercies of God. He's talking to the brethren here. And we kind of went into that some last time together when we talked about James, the last portion of James, how James uses the word brethren. And in some cases, they use that word in a broader context in the sense of Jewish brethren, like the book of Hebrews. Here, however, I believe he's talking specifically about the brethren who are in Rome, who are the called saints, the Christian community, the church as a whole. Notice also in the text, he uses the word therefore, the little conjunction un, O-U-N in the Greek. It has the idea of connecting us not only to the immediate context like chapter 11, although that's definitely included in it. This goes all the way back. To Romans 1, and carries all the way through the whole discourse of doctrine that the Apostle Paul has given to us. Just to help us to understand that, I want you to look with me at a few of those very important verses because what he calls these, what he calls the doctrine that he taught in chapter 1 through 11, is the mercies of God. Mercies are plural in the text, not the mercy singular, but the mercies of God. There are many mercies of God in your life that have resulted in your salvation that, of course, should lead you to the proper response that Romans 12, 1 and 2 talk about. Now, before we go any further into that, though, let me just define for you what the word mercies means in the text. And it is important that he makes the note of mercies. He could have used the word grace. Paul talks about the grace of God tremendously and a lot. But here he uses the word the mercies of God. The Greek term has the idea of pity or compassion or favor. More more characteristically, when you think about the idea of mercy, and I just want to get a little bit more definitive here, because Paul is using the word mercy in a definitive way. He's not just saying mercy in general or grace in general. He's talking about grace and mercy as a distinct, separate characteristic of God. The word mercy, you could think of it like this, of not getting what you do deserve. When God has mercy on you, he's not giving you hell. Or another way of saying that, he's keeping you alive right now. That's mercy, right? Or not judging you for your sin. It reminds me of the passage, I believe it is in Acts 17, where it says that God looked over the sins of the past. It doesn't mean that he had no desire to judge them. It simply means that he had mercy. He could have judged, and it would have been just for him to judge. 
And there were times, in fact, in the Old Testament, you all know this, that he had judged at times, right? But he has overlooked, clearly, the abundance of sins in the Old Testament because he's a merciful God. We read Psalm 136 intentionally this morning because I wanted it in your mind that the mercies of God endure forever. The mercies of God endure forever. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, which is hell, judgment, wrath. Grace, on the other side, is getting what you don't deserve, which is heaven, forgiveness, love, grace, long-suffering, all of the things, repentance, faith. We could go on with many other lists there. So if you want to draw a line between the two, that would be the distinctive. Mercy is not getting uh, what you do deserve, and grace is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is much more than saying something at the dinner table over your food. And we all have talked about the grace of God, right? We understand we are saved by grace, by the unmerited favor of God. That is, we're getting something we don't deserve. Mercy is the withholding of judgment so that you can get saved. So just to go back and quickly give you a review, I'm not going to preach the whole book of Romans again. But let me just take you through a jet tour, if you will, of some of these highlights, mountain peaks, if you will, of the mercies of God. So go back to Romans 1.18 for a moment. Romans 1.18. We start there because Paul starts his gospel presentation in Romans 1.18. He talks about the, the, the gospel as the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16. In other words, this message, the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ is the power of God for salvation. This is the only way someone gets saved. This is the only way someone's delivered from the wrath of God. This is the only way you get forgiveness of your sins. And folks, please, as I told you earlier, as we are so familiar with these texts in the scripture, we don't want to tune out onto the reality of these things because this is what literally magnifies the mercies of God. To understand this magnifies the mercies of God. And I think the longer you are saved is something that kind of gets too far in the past that we forget how severe it felt to be under the pressure of knowing you were under the judgment of God. Do you remember that? Do you remember that whenever you were first converted? Do you remember the sense of that? That you were overwhelmed with the, the cloud, the weight of the very judgment of God that you felt like Jonathan Edwards would have preached would have come at any moment on you? I encourage you to rethink about those things, and it magnifies the mercies of God. Romans 1.18, what does it say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And by the way, in our lost condition, that's where all of us were. We were literally under the wrath of God in our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. You remember what it says in John 3.36? For those that are unbelievers... It says the wrath of God abides on them. It remains on them. It doesn't mean God's dropping uh, thunderbolts out of the sky all the time. What it does mean is the very threat of the judgment of God remains over these people. I try my best, and sometimes I find myself being distracted, but I do my best to remind myself of that often whenever I'm involved in a conversation with someone or I'm seeing people that these people are either going one of two places like we talked about a while back either they're they're receiving eternal life or they're perishing 
And there's another way of looking, that, looking at that. Either they are saved and they have been delivered from the wrath to come, or they are, according to John 3.36, they're abiding under the wrath of God. At any moment, God could strike them dead. And rightfully so. So Paul begins with the bad news, no doubt, to highlight the importance of what God has done in salvation. This wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. These are the men who suppress the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, the truth that saved, the truth of the word. These are the ones who don't want to come to the light lest their evil deeds be reproved. These are the lost Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, and to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And we all know that passage is talking about the departure clearly of a society or a people or a person away from the very truth of God into hell, into sin, into, into lust. And God gives them over to judgment. And I'll just have to tell you this. Every time I read that verse, every time I read this passage, I think, Apart from the very grace and mercy of God, I would have been here. The only thing that makes me any different is not because I was raised in a Christian family necessarily, because I wasn't, or that I went to a Christian school, although I did. I'll tell you this, what makes the difference is the grace and the mercy of God. God could have killed me long ago, but he did not. He had set his love on me by his grace and his mercy to save me. Romans 2, 3, and 5 talks about the religious person. This is the person like Paul before he was converted. Romans 2, 3, and 5. And do you think, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? We have a lot of religious people who have a lot of ideas of what they believe to be righteous, and they claim to be walking righteous lives, but they're not really walking righteous lives. Paul was one of those people at that time when he was named Saul, he was involved in his religious efforts and he was judging everyone else and he was determining whether they were right with God because they weren't lining up with his set of laws. And he says, you need to remind yourself, just because you're religious, just because you may be affiliated with Judaism or the oracles of God or any other religion as far as that is concerned, or we could even bring it a little bit closer to home, just because you're part of a Baptist church or you're part of evangelicalism or just because you've been around the gospel your whole life, that, that does not exempt you from the wrath of God. To be around it doesn't make you a Christian. Like years ago, they would say, you know, to be in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? To be in a church doesn't make you a Christian. To be a child raised in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. There's personal faith that has to be exercised to believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. Mom and dad can't believe for you. The church can't believe for you. You have to trust Christ yourself. So in Romans 2 and 3, he says, these people who are religious they will also be judged by the very same things they're judging others with. They will not escape the judgment of God. So Paul begins by talking about the pagan in chapter 1 who is under the wrath of God, but that doesn't exclude the religious man who doesn't know Christ. He is also under the wrath of God. And then Romans 2, 8, and 9, he talks about the coming judgment. 
He, he says that uh, God is not partial in his judgment. Now verse 8, Romans 2. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. I'm amazed at how he does this. He doesn't talk about to those who have rejected Christ or to those who have not believed the gospel or those who have refused to, to accept Christ is often the term is used today. But in verse 8 he says, but to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness. Why does he say it like that? Because if someone's truly unconverted, this is what they do. This is the fruit of unconversion. This is the fruit of an unregenerate heart. This is the fruit of someone who does not know Christ. And as a result of that, in Romans 2, 8 and 9, he says they would receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 2, 12. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Paul's concluding remark is... Whether you're pagan, Gentile, whether you're Jew and religious, doesn't matter. If you don't know Christ, you're going to be judged and under the wrath of God. What he's doing is taking the opportunity here to help us to see that all of us are deserving of the very thing that the Bible talks about, the holy display of God's justice in wrath. In Romans 2.16, in that day it says, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus, According to my gospel. Now Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Paul's whole point of Romans 1 through 3. Is to help us to see that all men. Every man. Every woman. Every child are guilty before God. Every one of us. There's no person who has a better righteousness. Or are closer to God. Because of their birth their lineage, their religion, their parents, their church, none of that at all. We're all guilty before God. Without Christ, we are condemned. We are condemned. Even says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, that's talking about Adam, Romans 5, 12, and death came through sin. Reason why there is death, not only the first death, physical death, but also the second death is because of Adam and his sin. And then Romans 8, Excuse me, Romans 5, 18, therefore, as though, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Adam is our, our federal representative. He sinned in the garden, and as a result, all judgment comes to all his posterity, which is all of us. And we are under condemnation, according to Romans 5, 18. Romans 6.23 says, as a result of our sin, it brings forth death. And then he even reminds us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is the perfection of God, the standard of God. Romans 5.6 says that we were ungodly. Romans 5.10 says that we were the enemies of God. Frankly, folks, there is no pretty picture here at all. And if we're left with that, then we're in serious trouble. We're in deep depression. There is no hope. But that's not where Paul goes with this. His intent is to show us the mercies, plural, of God. Having made it very clear that as a result of our own life and being born in Adam, we are under the wrath and condemnation of God, he reminds us, listen to this now, just so you can see it, in Romans 5.10 to begin with, that even when we were enemies, even when we were hostile to God, 
We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And we were saved, according to verse 10, by his life. Now let me back up and show you a little bit more about the mercy of God. In the mercy of God in Romans 3, 19, back up to chapter 3, verse 19. I told you that the mercy of God is not giving you what you do deserve, right? And since we don't deserve heaven and we deserve hell, the mercy of God withholds hell from us. But listen to this. Grace comes to us because of God's mercy. Grace comes to us because of God's mercy. God withholds the wrath that he should have immediately dispensed on us. But instead of dispensing his wrath upon us, he has grace. Mercy literally is the hand that hands grace to us. Romans three nineteen. look at this. This is so beautiful. We've been through it before, so I won't spend a whole lot of time. It's not looking very plausible. We're going to get through verse 1. But I want you to understand the mercies of God. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There you have it. Everybody's guilty. Everybody. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be made right or righteous in his sight or justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. So if you're hoping in the law to save you, you're in serious trouble. That will never save you. It only condemns you. You don't get saved through the law. You need righteousness that you can't come up with on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't keep the commandments well enough. You can't rid yourself of sin. So in verse 21, he talks about that marvelous gift that comes by God's grace. He says in verse 21, now the righteousness of God. This is his personal righteousness apart from the law was revealed. In other words, apart from legalism, apart from law-keeping, apart from religion, apart from ceremony, apart from uh, sacrifice of animals, the righteousness that is uniquely God's has been revealed to us in the law and the prophets. He says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe. It doesn't come by works, it comes by faith. It comes by faith. He goes on and says in verse 22, the end of the verse, for there is no difference. This really tags on to the next verse. The verse, if you have 23 in between the, the phrase where it says, for there is no difference then for all of sin, verse 23 should have backed up at the beginning of the word for, because those two go together. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, everybody gets saved the same way. Nobody is born with an advantage. No one is born a little bit ahead of the other guy. Just because you have a Christian home or a Christian family or Christian heritage or you come to a Christian church doesn't mean you have an advantage necessarily in getting into the kingdom. I'm not saying that God doesn't use means, but I am telling you that that doesn't make you more righteous just because you're associated with those things. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet we are justified freely by his grace. Not by works, not by effort, not by paying a price, but we are justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
So it comes by the very purchase of Christ that you are saved and delivered from the wrath of God. His death is the reception of the wrath of God on his own son, on your behalf. Romans 4, 22 talks about the illustration of Abraham, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's a banking term, imputed. In other words, what Abraham could never do was granted to him. God mercifully withheld his wrath from Abraham, who clearly from the book of Genesis was a sinner, right? Instead of condemning him and putting him to death immediately, God in his grace gave him righteousness. He put it in his account. His account was in the deficit by the millions and the billions of sins he had committed against God. And God took all of those sins put it on his own son, poured out his wrath on his own son so that Abraham could receive God's righteousness given to him. So his bank account that was in the negative trillions went to the positive trillions of righteousness for God. So God's mercies are evident, right? Look at verse 6 of chapter 5, Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You do realize God didn't have to do this, right? He wasn't obligated to. He wasn't made to do this. God's character is a character of love, grace, and mercy. And he desires to put his character on display. And so he set his love on us, yes. And he moved himself through the Father into the Son to, of course, to have Jesus come and to die on the cross for the ungodly. As I said in Romans 5.10, it says... Whenever we were enemies, we were reconciled through his death. We rejoice in that, according to verse 11 of chapter 5. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Warring parties are brought together, and according to Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God. Peace with God. As it even reminds us in Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Comes through Christ and only through him. Romans 6, verse 17, Paul says, but God be thanked that though we were at one time slaves of sin, bound by sin, following our master's sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart the doctrine which you had been delivered and have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. Folks, that is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Romans 6.23, I didn't finish that verse earlier. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. By God's mercy, and one that I love is Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation because of the very mercy of God. So we conclude as Paul begins to reach the zenith, he becomes, he climbs and climbs and climbs out of the miry pit of sin and hell and judgment and condemnation. And he climbs up higher and higher through the mercy of God, finally to the very peak of it all. And you find it found in Romans 8. And he says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And the ones that he called, he also justified, made righteous. And the ones that he justified, he also glorified. And then comes this wonderful statement in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We went from condemnation, wrath, and judgment, and hell to now having God on our side and in us. Then comes this, Romans 8, 38. I think Paul is just uh, so filled with praise, so filled with adoration of the wonderful gospel of Christ. In verse 38 he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mercy has brought us to this point. So a couple of closing points on mercy. Mercy is not earned or deserved. Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. The point is that we are saved but according to his mercy, according to his mercy. One last point, mercy is not only not earned and not deserved, it is also sovereign and selective. Sovereign and selective. God does not determine who gets mercy based upon your conduct. He gives mercy as he wills, as he wills. Romans 9.13, you know it well. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. We often find trouble with that. We say, how in the world could God do such a thing? How could he hate Esau? I wonder how he could love Jacob. That's the mercy. Think about yourself. Have you ever asked yourself, why in the world would God love me? Why would he send his own son to die in my place? Why would he take all of my sin put it on his own son, and punish his son as if he was punishing me so that I could receive his forgiveness and his righteousness. Listen, listen to what it says. The word of God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. The point of that text is this. You and I have no right to or claim to mercy. At all. If you are saved today, it is because God sovereignly selected to give you mercy. That's what makes mercy so merciful. It's so wonderful. He could have passed over every one of us here today, and the full justice and wrath of God could have been dispensed on us, and God would have done nothing wrong. But instead, he says, instead of pouring out my wrath on them, I'll pour it out on my own son. And I'll let him receive the full wrath and justice that they deserve so that I can be merciful to him, to him, to her, to that child, to that person. Isn't it beautiful? So Paul begins by saying, I beg you, therefore, brethren, through through the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. Now next week, we'll talk about what that means. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for today. Thank you, Lord God, just for this reminder. Uh, Lord, we pray that it would have impact on our love for you and our devotion to you.
and that we would be fully, completely devoted to Christ. We give you praise for your mercy. We give you praise, Lord God, for your love for us from all eternity. It is hard for us to put our minds and our hearts around what you have done. But Lord, today especially, we just want to say that we give you praise for that. We give you thanks for loving us and having mercy on us. And Lord, we pray today that if there's someone here who's never trusted Christ, that you would help them to see the abounding mercy of God extended to them to hear this today. And that they would respond in faith and trust Jesus alone for their salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.